Father, as we gather together as your people tonight to learn from you and from your word, grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the understanding of your son Jesus and of your gospel and of your church and of your kingdom. Lord, we come as learners to you. Uh, give us a ready ear. Give us, O oh Lord, a obedient heart, we pray, and fill us with light, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're looking at Article 20. And um, this this is um, really follows, it follows upon last time's uh, Article 19 quite, quite closely, uh, both relating to the church. This one specifically relating to the way that the Anglican Church thinks about thinks about its ceremonies. Um, give me one second here. So let's read that article together. Article 20. The Church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, Neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the Church be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be, to be believed for necessity of salvation. Okay, um, now there's a helpful, there's a helpful at the, bo <clears throat> at the bottom of page one, that helpful little description by Thomas Boltby. He was a Reformed Anglican in the 19th century, and he says this, he says, This article, as originally intended, pointed two ways. Against the Romanists, who deny the sole authority of Scripture, and also against the Puritans, who in their zeal against some ceremonies retained at the Reformation, denied the authority of the church to decree anything, anything which was not explicitly or implicitly laid down in Scripture. So, number one against Rome, number two against Puritans. Now, I have to kind of um, uh, make a certain qualification here that I love the Puritans. I've been formed and shaped by the Puritans. I'm constantly reading the Puritans and those who have been inspired by the Puritans whether it's J.C. Ryle or whether it's Spurgeon or whether it's Lloyd-Jones, I really admire the tradition greatly. I think it's helpful. I think that more people should read them. Um, and uh, I think they're quite unique. But uh, they're not perfect, and they had, they had feet of clay. And they're really, really good on many aspects of theology. I, I don't think that they were um, entirely good in their ecclesiology and in other aspects of the church. Um, and in many aspects, the 16th century and the 17th century of England was 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 a total cluster because of the Puritans. And uh, not only did they assassinate their king, which Scripture pretty plainly says not to do, both in the Old Testament and in the New, touch not the Lord's anointed one, and then Paul says the king's put there by God, <laughs> very clearly in Romans. So, um, but the the uh, the Puritans. Uh, they, they, I mean, Puritanism is very, it's a variegated movement, lots of kind of Puritans. It's not monolithic, it's not monochromatic, but a number of them, um, a number of them ob objected uh, seriously enough to the Church of England's understanding of ceremonies and rites that it caused a lot of problems and a lot of angst in, the, in um, these two centuries. So what's the, what's the issue here? What, what were the Puritans? We don't need to cover... I don't think that it's helpful for us at this point, having spoken so much about it, um, to to deal with Rome 
and their their denial of scripture is the only authority. We've been there and we've done that. I do want to talk a bit about the Puritans and their objections to Anglican worship. So this is page number two. Now, what's the issue here? Well, it's the regulative principle of worship, which is the issue, number one. And uh, we find this in the Westminster Confession. This is, I believe, in chapter 21 or somewhere around there. Yeah. So the light of nature, we read, shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So the this is called the, the regulative principle. Some will contrast this with, they'll call it the normative principle. Whether that's the correct term for it is up for debate. But at least the regulative principle says that the only way that is lawful to worship God is that which has been explicitly expressed or prescribed in Scripture. So if Scripture says to do it, we do it. If it doesn't say to do it, we must not do it. So if it's not in Scripture... We can't make that part of our worship unto God, whether it's any kind of um, whatever, whatever it may be. So part of this is a is a is a you know to 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 think positively about this. Part of this is derived from their confidence in scriptures. God has provided all things necessary for us in Scripture. Right? That's the kind of there's a confidence there. He's provided it for us, and we can worship Him confidently. Um, it's however it's it's. I mean, we can talk about this at length, um, it's misleading in a number of ways because Scripture doesn't speak specifically enough to us about the public worship of God um, to allow us to get around doing that public worship in a way that's both decent and a way that's in order um, without necessarily adding things to it that aren't in Scripture, such as offering plates, um, such as, uh, you know, a, a sign outside your church with a cross on it to let them know it's a Christian church, uh, such as hymn books, um, things that aren't specifically in Scripture that we necessarily need to use in order for order. So the, the, regu the, the regulative principle, it collapses on itself and it causes problems. Now, um, specifically, what were the Puritans against? Oh, I've listed some things here. I've listed 11 things that they're against, the Puritans. This is mostly generally speaking. Um, now, when we speak Puritan, we, we say they're, the, they're the, um, largely the Presbyterians, the, uh, the uh, Independents, and there were, some, there were some Baptists among them as well in the early days. A lot of the other Baptists were more radical. Um, what were they against? Well, number one, they were against vestments. What are vestments? So the Vestiarian controversy, this is in the 16th century, um, happened under Bishop Hooper largely when he refused to wear the, he was called to be a bishop, refused to wear the clothing of a bishop. 
A lot of people gathered around him, and a lot of people likewise said that the garments of the Anglican priest were popish, they were superstitious, and they 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 smacked too much of Rome, basically. Um, and so there was great displeasure in, in the Puritan party against the surplus, against the cassock, against scarves, all these things. Um, and... Uh, yeah, some of the continental reformers who weren't even dressing like the Anglicans, uh, such as Bullinger, thought that the the um, the displeasure with vestments was rather petty and trite. Um, Calvin himself, wore, at least, wore vestments. Right? Calvin wore a Geneva gown. Calvin wore a scholar's cap. So it's not that they're not dressing; they just thought that this dress looked too much like too much like Rome, and so it needed to change. Number one, number two, they were against kneeling at the Lord's Supper. Now, in our church, we don't kneel at the Lord's Supper, but I would, I'd like us to because that's part, <laughs> it's part of our tradition, and it's it's uh, part of our part of our reverence towards what we're doing um, and our acknowledgement that we're receiving something very special. And very profound. And so most Anglican churches, you'll have a communion rail and you'll have an, an, a kneeler around it um, and you'll kneel and you'll receive communion. Um, if you go to the Lutheran church here, the first Lutheran church on, on uh, Lakeshore, they have a communion rail and they have a kneeler around it and you go and you kneel to receive communion. That's just part of our tradition. Well, the Puritans didn't like this. Number one, because like with the vestments, at least in the New Testament, they couldn't find it. They found vestments in the Old Testament. Now, there, there was in the Puritan movement a kind of a subtle dichotomy here between old and between new that, that, that kind of muddied the waters a little bit with respect to the vestments. Um, the scriptures is silent there about what, what clergy wear or don't wear. Uh, two, kneeling at the Lord's Supper, um, it's not found in the New Testament explicitly. What do you think that they thought was, what were they afraid of the Puritans with kneeling at the Lord's Supper? Would anyone think of something that they'd be worried about or anxious about? Probably idolatry, perhaps? Yeah, the, the adoration of the host. Um, that they were kneeling and worshipping the host. Um, which, um, pardon me? The, this great sacrament, we, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so worshiping the host, um, which Anglicans uh, forbid. The host, the host is the is the is the uh, the uh, the elements, um, and specifically the bread. Um, so um, worshiping the host, that that they they were uh, objected to kneeling. They objected to standing at the reading of the gospel, which we do. It's part of our tradition. Now, why do we stand to read the gospel? Because we recognize that it's the the birth and the life, and the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and now his continual intercession. But it's the, it's the, the life, death, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ that is the substance of everything else that's written in the New Testament. All of it points back to that. It's the source of it, and it's the med that's the meditation of the New Testament. And so we honor Christ in his Gospels as the substance. It does not mean that the Gospels are more Scripture than, than Titus, or the Gospels are more Scripture than Philemon. Although we might say that some Scriptures have, you know, significant more weight than others. We don't say that one is any more or less the Word of God than the other. 
Um, and when I say more weight, I just mean to say that, you know, um, you know, it's all scripture, but, you know, the Song of Solomon, which is ostensibly uh, a manual for, for human sexuality, it's great, it's good, part of scripture, part of God's revelation to us. It's, it doesn't quite have the weight of the Gospel of John, for instance, uh, even though it's all scripture, God-breathed, profitable, all of these things. So the Gospels and the Epistles are both equally scripture, but we recognize that the Gospel accounts are the substance, and they are the foundation, and they are the meditation of everything that's going on in the Epistles. Um, number, um, so they, they, they didn't like that. Um, number four, they didn't like written prayers. Now, if you read Bunyan, Bunyan's great. I myself have lost count now as to how many times I've read through the Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read it, you need to read it. You need to read the Pilgrim's There's no excuse to not reading the Pilgrim's Progress. You can get, you can get um, uh, um, modern updated language versions of the Pilgrim's Progress. Easy to read. Alistair Beggs put out a translation of it. You, there's all kinds of helps for you. Uh, very good stuff. But in uh, Bunyan's book on prayer, very good book on prayer, he goes against the prayer book with, with scathing acidity. Bunyan just lambastes the Book of Common Prayer. He goes on and on and on and on about how form, formal prayer, set prayer, is useless. Pre-written prayers, Bunyan says, cannot lift our hearts to God. Now, what's the obvious problem of that kind of logic? The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, right. And they would say, oh, yes, but that's just a pattern. It's not meant to be prayed, right? That He just gave that as a, as a pattern. So, yes, the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us, pray like this. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it literally. Uh, what else is a problem with, with saying that set prayers can't lift our hearts to God? The Psalms. The Psalms, yeah, the Psalter. The Psalter is there for God's people to pray. And we know it's there for us to pray because that's where Jesus went in his most desperate hour. When he's most, um, um, you know, at, at, uh, in, in suffering and in angst, he reaches out to the Psalms. He cries out to them with his, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? It's all that he can do is pray the Psalms. And that's a lovely thought for us too, right? In our troubles and our woes, it's all you can do to pray the Psalms. They help you, they guide, they guide your heart. So, the scriptures themselves teach us that um, form prayers or set prayers are good and they're right. It doesn't mean that they're the only way to pray. It doesn't teach that. It says that they are a good way to pray. And so what we try to do in, the, in, our, in our services, we try, is that we try to incorporate both of these things. And, and so often in the, in the prayers of the people, it can be an extemporaneous ad-lib prayer. Um, and often that's what I do. It doesn't have to be done that way, but it, it, it can certainly be done that way. After service, we pray. So when someone comes forward to the to the front for prayer, I don't have to pull out a card. and say, okay, what do you got? You got the flu? Where's the card for the flu? And I'm just kind of, I know. <laughs> Sorry, I can't pray for you. I, I don't have the card for the flu. It's a good way to pray. Um, so they're against written prayers. They're against holidays, number five. Goodness gracious, why, why would they be against holidays? Because the scripture only gives one kind of, prescribes only one kind of holiday. Sabbath. Doesn't prescribe any other kind of holiday. So any other, any other day, now there were, the Anglican church did have days 
that were holy days. Holiday comes from a holy day. And observances, feasts, festivals that had a religious uh, connotation about them. And the Puritan says, no, there's only one holy day, and that's the Sabbath. We can't have any other days off like that. Um, confirmation was another one of their beefs that they, they felt didn't have scriptural um, affirmation. I think that they're wrong in that. Uh, Baxter didn't believe this. Baxter was very, very strong on confirmation. He felt that it's right and good. Um, and I like Baxter here. Funerals. Puritans felt that the, the funeral service in the Book of Common Prayer was unfounded. It was too much stuff going on. It needs to be simpler. We can't spend so much time around the dead or dead. Let's, let's just kind of get over with it. Let's just deal with it. So all that service surrounding the, 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 the honoring of the dead, and, and, um, and especially this, I've, I put in, in parenthesis here this phrase, ensure in certain hope of what? Of the resurrection. Yeah, ensure, it's what, what the minister says, ensure in certain hope of the resurrection. Well, the Puritans didn't like this because you can't be sure and certain of anybody because of the doctrine of predestination. And so what they what they preferred a minister to say was, he might be in hell, he might be in heaven. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> he's predestined some to life, he's predestined some to damnation. So, you know, there's, there's I mean, pastorally, of course, that's, that's, that's catastrophic, uh, pastorally, especially, especially when none of us know um, what's happening. And the, the line here, and we, we want to hope the best, in the end of the day, none of us knows what happens in a person's life before they perish. None of us know. And the end of the day, we hope. We hope that God has mercy. If we don't hope that God has mercy on people, then we're all we're all basically asses, right? If we don't hope for that, um, we can't say it positively, but we can we can hope for mercy, um, and that's what that that's what that line says. Um, number eight, the ring, the ring in the marriage service. They didn't like giving of rings and wearing of rings. The Puritans. Why? Where do you see it in the Bible? Number one, it's not in the Bible, and so the service. The wedding service, which is a religious service, you, we can't have the exchange of rings. Secondly, there's one other thing they were afraid of here, having to do with marriage. It has to do with, with, with seven other things. Well, five other things that they weren't too fond of. Sacrament. Because the, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, marriage is a sacrament. And they thought that the giving of the ring had sacramental significance. Why? Because a sacrament is... Visible sign of an invisible grace. What's the visible sign? The ring. Right. What well, is a sign? Right. It is a sign. It's a sign of a, of a pledge. If it's, it's a sign of a troth. It's a sign of a covenant. It's a sign of the the uh, the um, the um, everlastingness of this covenant. All these things. Um, so they were against the ring in marriage service. They were against the sign of the cross. There's some very funny stories about Puritan uh, folks uh, having their because a number of them felt their children should be baptized, but they didn't like the sign of the the, the cross, uh, the aerial sign of the cross of the minister at, at baptism. Very funny stories about some parents at the moment of the cross they would take the kid and they go like this, they duck him out of the way so that he he cross empty space and he'd miss the child, or some would actually grab the minister's arm and prevent him from making the sign of the cross. Um, <laughs> Now, um, you know, the, the sign of the cross, it, it, it certainly is part of our Anglican tradition. It's part of the ancient Christian tradition. So I, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times now. I've been reading through De Corona by Tertullian. 
This is 204 AD. It's very, very early. Um, he's probably born around 150 something, Tertullian. He's a great African um, theologian. And um, in 204, uh, Tertullian's in De Corona, he's talking about the tradition, and he says, when we get up, when we go to work, when we pray, when we eat a meal, when we go to bed at night, we sign ourselves with the cross, he says. And when he says it, he's saying it in the context as this has always been happening, and it's been happening everywhere. This is 204. It's very, very early. So how do we go from 204 where Tertullian saying this has always happened, we've always been making the sign of the cross, and it's universal practice to the, to the 20th century when in, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, it was like a sign of the devil if you made the sign of the cross. It was, it was tantamount to being demonic, right? Um, this kind of wicked, witchcraft-like superstition. How do we get there? Um, and my, my, my conviction is that we end up actually exchanging it for vacuity. It's just vacuous. Rather than the sign of the cross, which is objective and it points to Jesus, it's the sign of this or this. or I mean, this is fine too, right? But it's, it's actually much less in my perception, more subjective. There's many of them, right? Holding the TV, yeah. all those things. They didn't like the sign of the cross in baptism. They didn't like baptismal fonts. They didn't like baptismal fonts because it reminded them too much of the laver of the Old Testament. It was Old Testament furniture. And, and there's, no, there's no baptismal font in the New Testament, so you can't have a baptismal font. So a font is just a, it's just a, it's just a, a bath in, in a church. So like we have at St. David's, there's a wooden one. In fact, most PCA churches will have a baptismal font. But it's nowhere to be found in the New Testament. And this was where the regulative principles start to break down because you need these things. You need something to hold water in, you know, unless you have a river in the back of your church or you have a creek or you have a pond or a lake or whatever. You need something to hold water in, right? Or a bathtub somewhere or a baptismal tank. Um, and uh, so they didn't like that. And finally, and this is not exhaustive, they didn't like Christmas. And at, at a certain point under Cromwell's reign, they actually managed to delete it. Uh, from uh, England's experience. Kind of a sad, sad kind of uh, reminder of, of the, the white witch and the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, right? <laughs> Always winter, never Christmas. And this kind of stern, gloomy Christianity that denies the, 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 the role of the festive. I don't think we go from the, the Hebrew religion, which is big on festivity, to the Christian religion where it's all just kind of stern and gloomy and, and you can't have festivity anymore. Um, that's a problem. It has to be more festive. Christianity has to be more festive, right, in, in light of what's happened, not less than. So that's what they were against. Um, and, and so who comes, in, who comes into the arena now? Richard Hooker. Richard Hooker is one of the greatest theologians ever. Um, and he wrote a multi-volume book called The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. And now this goes without saying, by the way, that the, the Puritans were also largely, largely, these ones at least, against um, Episcopalianism, the rule of the church by bishops. Um, although they're, they're, they're far less on solid ground there because there is, there is, of course, reference to the Episcopos in Scripture, even if we even if it's um, arguably in the New Testament um, equatable to the uh, Presbyteros, the Presbyter. Richard Hooker comes into the arena 
and he he um, he really argues quite quite strongly against the Puritan faction on the right of the Church Catholic to legislate on matters indifferent. This is what we call a diaphora, things indifferent, things that aren't essential to our salvation, things that are just you know are the the um, the clothing that we wear, well, the clothing specifically, but the the outward trappings. Um, and, and not essential to our to our faith. He says the church has a right and authority to establish these things. And if you think about it, and I think I put a quote here later on that 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 um, demonstrates this, all churches do. All churches have a sense of authority by which they say this is how we're going to do things. Has anyone ever been in a church? where they've not said in this, this is a specific way that we're going to conduct worship. How we feel called to, con they all do it, right? They all do it. And they, they either, we're going to start with five songs. And then after the third song, we're going to stop and be quiet and wait for someone to say something. Or, you know, then we're going to have a pastoral prayer. Then this is the time when the children will leave the, I mean, it's all, they, they all feel that they have the power to, to say, this is how it's going to be done. And, and they all know that it's worship to God. Like no church really believes that this is just us. Well, except for like a Unitarian church, but it's just us kind of just saying kumbaya together. They all believe that this is for God to God in some way, some less, some more imperfectly than others. Um, and so in that, in that knowledge of this is done to God, they're all saying as a church, we have the right and authority to just design this. Um, and that's all that Hooker, Hooker is saying. Now, uh, look at this quote at the bottom of page two. The fathers held the authority of Scripture to be primary and paramount and considered that the church had power, had no power to enact new articles of faith nor to decree anything which was contrary to the Scriptures. The power of the church they held not as an authority superior or equal to the Scriptures, but as declaratory of them when doubtful, when they were in doubt, they could declare what was true about them. And uh, decretory or, or um, decretory on matters of discipline. The reformers in general did not deny such authority to the church to interpret scripture in cases of dispute upon doctrine, nor to adopt or retain certain ceremonies of ancient custom of human institution, not contrary to the teaching of scripture. So Harold Brown here, good guy, uh, he's an Anglican, 19th century Anglican. He says that the fathers um, were believed that whatever the church was was always subservient to Scripture. The reformers felt the same, and the reformers largely felt that the church had a right to declare or decree ceremonies and customs that weren't present in Scripture. So this is this is as much to say the Anglican tradition is not in disharmony with the fathers, and the Anglican tradition is not in disharmony with the Reformation, largely. Um, okay, so let's look at a breakdown of the article now. Um, the article itself has three positive assertions, and it has two negative assertions. Number one, uh, uh, the three positive assertions, the church is a witness and a keeper of Holy Scripture. The church has power to decree rites and ceremonies. The church has authority in controversies of faith. Those are the three things that it says positively. Then it says two negative things. 
It is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. And then besides the written word, the church ought not to enforce anything to be believed as necessary for salvation. We can't, we can't do anything repugnant to Scripture, and we can't add anything to Scripture to say, this you have to also believe in order to be saved. And we can think of some things in a moment as to where that's done. You also need to do this. Yeah, it's all, all this and also this. That, that's, it's saying you can't do that. So let's just look quickly through these, um, these, uh, this breakdown. So a positive assertion number one, the church as a witness and a keeper of Scripture. The church is the bank. It's the vault that's told. So someone read uh, Romans 3, 2 for me. And then someone th put your thumb in 1 Timothy 3. So Romans 3, 2. You got it? Okay, Roman, what, what's Romans 3, 2? Much in every way, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Okay, so the Jews were, were entrusted with God's lively oracles. The Jews were the, the people to whom God commits his scripture. So we have the Old Testament committed to the Jews, and we have the New Testament then, the, the word of God committed to the church. They are, they are in the same way. As the Jews were, were holding Scripture, now the church of Jesus Christ holds the complete revelation. We get this in 1 Timothy 3.15. Can someone read that? What is the church? It's described here as the... By the way, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress. It's the pillar and the buttress of, of, of truth in some translations. Yeah, of the truth. Um so this idea that, that it has all of the, the, the scriptures from the old that God's committed, and now God has committed more scriptures to it, and it, it, it has now this function of holding everything up as the repository of truth. And, uh, of course, Acts 2.4.2, we all know that by, by heart almost, Acts 2.4.2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So we have the Old Testament, and we have the apostles' teaching. Uh, the church is the, is the keeper of the scriptures, um, and it's the witness of Scripture. So here's, here's a good description of this by Harold Brown. Uh, we, the children of the church, must receive the word of God from her. She, by our parents and her ministers, puts the Bible into our hands even before we could seek it for ourselves. To her care, her Lord has entrusted it. She keeps it. She testifies to us that it is the word of God and teaches us the truths contained in it. Her ministers are enjoined to hold fast the form of sound words, to preach the word in season and out of season. And so she leads us by preaching and catechizing in other modes of instruction to take the Bible in our hands and to read it for ourselves. It's a lovely, lovely description of the church. It's that place where they say, we, we, we are the keeper of the word of God. Here is the word of God reminding us constantly, Sunday by Sunday, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's word for you, reminding us again and again. Yes, indeed, it is God's, God's word and then um, leading us to look into it for ourselves. So it is, it is, the, it is the keeper of Scripture. It is the witness of Scripture. It, it holds it. The church proclaims it, number one. That's its primary function. That's its primary function. Um, the positive assertion, number two, is that the church has power to decree 
rites and ceremonies. Now, what does it mean by this? It does not mean sacraments or other ordinances of the gospel. Because a sacrament to be a sacrament is not decreed by the church. A sacrament to be a sacrament is decreed by by whom? Jesus Christ. To be a sacrament, it has to be ordained by Christ. It has to have dominical command to it. Um, this is one of the reasons why the reformers are so insistent that there are only two, two um, sacraments, not seven. Because the only two that have positive dominical command are baptism and the Lord's Supper. He positively commands those. And so the church has no power to, um, to decree other, more sacraments, namely penance, marriage, um, purgatory, etc., etc., um, or ordination. I've put in brackets there. Ordination was a sacrament in the Roman. It is a sacrament in the Roman Catholic system. Um, okay, so they're not sacraments or other ordinances of the gospel. Um, by rites and ceremonies, we, under that second point, therefore, meant things comparatively indifferent in themselves, the adjuncts and accidents, not the essence and the substance of holy things. That's what it can it can it can do. So, you know, how, how, we, how we read the Scripture, how many times we read Scripture in service, um, how we administer the Lord's Supper, whether, whether you know, we, we, we come up to the front or we administer to people in the seat, um, what we wear, um, all of these things, all of these things um, are the incidental or so the accidental and the, the adjuncts. Um, scripture... I've written here provides general guidance only. Uh, general guidance only for public worship. Scripture does not give generally specific instruction for public worship. And so I've given you some examples here of the general instruction for how we should do public worship. Number one, 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty six to forty, we're told generally that we should do it decently and in, and in order. Everything should be done decently and in order. You know, there is some sense there in 1 Corinthians 14. I don't, honestly, guys, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to make of 1 Corinthians 14 to, to uh, 12 and 14 uh, a lot, and especially 14. Um, but I do know that it should be done decently and in order, and that's a general instruction. Uh, James 2 we read that um, there should be no partiality to the rich. Remember James says there, don't, don't give the best seats to the rich guy and the poor seats to the poor guy because the rich are those who do what to you? They, they kind of, they're the ones who abuse you, right? The rich are the bad, generally the bad people. And so <laughs> it's just a bad idea, he says, to kind of show partiality to the rich. Um, uh, thirdly, uh, we have a general principle of male headship and male leadership, both in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16 and 1 Corinthians 14, 34. This is where he's, Paul says that, that, that um, um, man is, made, is the glory, um, is the image and the glory of God, and the wife, hard words, is the glory of her husband. Um, and so we have, we have a definite pattern here for male headship and for male leadership in the church. Uh, by Paul. And then fourthly, 
we have this instruction for reverent administration of the Lord's Supper, which is uh, concerning how we should discern the body. And this is not here Paul talking discerning the body as the church. It's discerning the body of the Lord because he's just now talking about the body and the blood. And he goes on to talk now about recognizing the body. How you come about the Lord's Supper. I, I'm going to tell you guys a story here. I, I watched a... Um, a very disturbing video the other day about a, uh, a communion service it was on YouTube. And during the words of institution, as one pastor was going over the words of institution, two other pastors were sitting behind him, snickering and joking with each other, just kind of talking back and forth and smiling as the words of institution were being said kind of thing. That's a very good example of how not to discern the body. That's not what we should be doing. This moment of the church service is very, very important. And it's so important that Paul says, if you go about it the wrong way, some of you may get sick and some of you may die. Because the Lord regards this as very, very important. Um, and so should we, he says. Uh, so, reverent administration of the Lord's Supper. We have a pattern of male headship. We shouldn't give partiality to the rich. Everything should be done decently in order. There are some other things, of course, right? We have uh, Paul saying, first of all, prayer should be made for all people. The, this idea of prayer should be made for kings and, and those who are in power. The preaching of the, of the word um, is, is part of that. But outside of these general descriptions, um, there's, there's not a lot of specific um, instruction. So Brown says this. He says, if the public authority of the church could not enjoin anything concerning rites and ceremonies, whether to kneel or stand at communion, what to wear in the pulpit, whether to immerse in water or pour, whether prayers should be a set form or extempore, what utter confusion might exist in our assemblies. Yet we are taught that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So if we didn't have power apart from these broad general descriptions of how to do worship, if we didn't have the authority to say, this is how it should be done, well, it would just be chaos. Every Sunday would be something different. Everybody would be doing something different. You'd have one guy on Sunday sitting in his pew waiting for his bread. And one, everyone else going up and him saying, well, this is the way I do it, right? So we have to be able to say, this is how it's done. And so the, the you can just see how the the Anglican Church here understands that, that the authority of the church to implement these things is just rational and obvious. So here's, here's a, he continues on here, the, the last paragraph there. All bodies of Christians, however opposed to ceremonial, have yet exercised the power of decreeing rights for their own bodies. However bare and free from ornament their public worship may be, yet in some way or other it is ordered and regulated. If it be public worship at all, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ministered with some degree of regularity. Preaching and praying are arranged after some kind of order. And how simple soever that order may be, it is an order derived from the authority of their own body and not expressly prescribed in Scripture. Scripture teaches all things essential for salvation, but all minutia of ceremonial it neither teaches nor professes to teach. Such, therefore, must be left in some degree to the authority and the wisdom of the church. So that's a pretty fair and clear defense of why there has to be authority in the church 
to declare rites and ceremonies. That is how we go about doing things. And no one can say that any church just purely follows the New Testament. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. Um, and um, I think it's a, it's a wrong path to go down. Now, the, the, two, the, two, the third there, the third positive assertion, the authority of the church in controversies, what does that mean? It just means that we actually depend upon the councils to make decisions for us. We all do, right? Why? All of us generally do. Even the churches that say they don't, the church has no authority to make decisions um, in matters of dispute. Um, that's not really, it's not a Christian idea. Why, why do we all believe generally that the church has authority to make decisions? about matters of doctrine because of well unless we unless we are completely revolting against what we're saying every Sunday when we say the, the Apostles Creed or we say the Nicene Creed and we just reject that idea which some people do admittedly we all accept that at certain times in history the church bands together and it says no to this and it says yes to this it says no to Arius that there was a time when Christ was not, which, by the way, was Aries arguing on Scripture. This is why I've put here uh, in the second point there, all heretics claim Scripture on their side. If the church is not allowed to exercise authority in controversies of faith, she can never reject heretics. Because everybody's claiming Scripture. Well, who's right? Well, the church has authority given by given by Christ. This is what some would call the power of the keys, but to to come together and to reject the heretic. In this case, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, count, you know, the, 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 the first, at least five councils we, we would probably recognize. Lloyd might not recognize the sixth and the seventh, but, uh, you know, generally, uh, we recognize the, the, the role of the church in gathering together to make affirmations. Um, that's just, that's just who we are, and, and certainly that's what Anglicans believe. Um, now, the negative assertions. Negative assertions, um, we're not it's not lawful to ordain anything contrary to God's word. So Anglicans believe that whatever they've ordained for ceremonies or rites is not contrary to the word of God. Kneeling at the sacrament, vestments, is not contrary to the word of God. So... Um, if someone says, why, why, why would you wear a surplus and why would you wear a cassock and why would you wear a, a preaching scarf? That's, that's repugnant to the word of God. There's a lot of reason to say, well, no, it's not. Show me where in the New Testament it says that a minister of the gospel can't wear a dress that is descriptive of his role. Now, I've often used this, this, uh, this for my own, this is just my own kind of, uh, my own kind of um, analogy that helps me. If I'm going in a plane, I don't know why it is, I don't know why it is that low church people get so hot and bothered by clerical dress. Part of it, I think, is because there's a very low view of ordination in, in the evangelical church. We don't really have, a, have much regard for it um, and, and what it means. Um, but if you go generally, if you're in a plane, right, and the pilot comes out and he's wearing his Tommy Bahama shorts and he's got he's got a kind of a t-shirt on and flip-flops, you're not going to really be that confident, are you? 
You kind of you kind of like you like that the pilot has a uniform on. You just do because he takes his job seriously. You, you know, a a uh, a policeman who who has his uniform on. Or Heather and I Heather and I were walking down the street uh, on Water Street the other day, going to just going for a walk, and two barristers walked by. Long flowing robes, the white collars. You know, they were about their business. They were about their work. No one's offended by that. No one's like, what are they doing? You know, I remember going to Synod in Ottawa, walking from the hotel to the church, which was a matter of 500 meters. And because I didn't want to, to, to kind of have to carry myself, I just wore my cassock and surplus. And, I, and, and walking in Ottawa, and people driving by just sneering. What a bunch of freaks these people think they are. But they never seem to think to do that to a lawyer, or to a policeman, or to a pilot. The dress means that someone's been set apart. The dress means that this person takes their job seriously, and um, it's it's really no m more than that, and it's no less than that, and uh, it's not something that we should be troubled with um, whatsoever. So we believe that all of these things are not repugnant to God's word. Um, why? Well, because it's not lawful to ordain anything contrary to the word of God. Now, if we were to say that when um, you come up to the front of the church, I'm going to put a picture. Now, I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here because I know that I'm going to offend no one here, but I'll offend someone there. I'm going to put a picture of St. Chrysostom, and you got to kiss him. you got to kiss Chrysostom. Now, I believe that that's not lawful. I think that's repugnant. I think that that's uh, adoring a creature which we're not permitted to do. Now, someone say, no, it's not. It's not worship. It's not that kind of worship. It's not latria. It's it's this other kind of worship. Or, um, but all the same, um, we we can't invent stuff like that. I can't tell you guys to worship people. I can't tell you guys to uh, uh, image God. I can't. I can't require of you to to make an image of of uh, of the invisible God, that God that can't be seen. I can't have you do that. Um, I can't. What else can't I do? A number of things I can't do. Um, but it's clear to me, at least, that nothing in the Anglican tradition. You might think of something. You might want to ask about it. Is actually repugnant to the Word of God or contrary to it. Um, and that's important that we hold that. Um, The, the negative assertion, the second negative assertion there is that no noodle articles of faith can be added for which there's no authority in the Bible. Revelation 22, 18. Do you guys remember that? Remember that this is one of the last verses in the Bible? If anyone adds to this, let the curses of this book kind of be, be upon them. Now, you know, that's in part specific to the book of Revelation, but it's also a very fitting way for the Bible to end. Like, this is it. This is the last. No one adds to this book. And so we're not allowed to add anything uh, to the content of Scripture and equate it with Scripture and say that you have to kind of remember this also in order to be saved. That's that's not permitted. And there are some, there are have grown in the church some traditions that have done that. Uh, new Revelation. There's, there's no adding to Scripture. It canon is closed. And so there's no new prophecies. There's there's nothing else that needs to be known 
or realized or obeyed in order to to gain our salvation. Um, even when you get your you know Seventh Day Adventist prophetesses who say there is, you have to know this as well. In fact, Jesus' redemption, part of that teaching is Jesus' redemption happened. I think somewhere in the 19th century, there is another aspect of Christ's redemption that took place. <laughs> That's not recorded in the Bible. Um, well, that kind of stuff, of course, is not permitted. Okay, um, are there any questions about the role of, I think we can talk maybe a little bit about the role of Anglican rites or ritual or ceremonies that you'd like to ask at this point? Or this, this distinction between regulative and, and normative that's troubling you? It's a good, good question. Um, one, because we don't see the practice of the apostles doing it themselves. So um, even though Jesus says, you know, as you've seen me do, so you should do likewise. Um, <clears throat> we never actually see them doing it as we see them baptizing people and as we see them um, at the Lord's table themselves receiving. Um, so I think in, in that sense, we take that to be metaphorical. It's a metaphorical command not to do it literally but you need to serve each other like i'm serving you um there's no record of them doing that in the church um, i i i think it's yeah it, i mean it's it's also um i've never been part, i've just never been part of a foot washing ceremony that's probably because i've avoided them um uh i don't think there's anything wrong with it but there's nothing either pragmatic about it because we don't generally wear sandals and, and dusty feet. We have, we have, it's, it's kind of a different, a different culture now um, without that need for it. We have showers and, and these things. Um, I, I don't think it's wrong for people to do it. I just certainly don't think it's necessary. Yeah. People do it at weddings now. Yeah, that's weird. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think it's weird? Yeah. I guess so. I just, yeah, it's kind of weird to me. There you go, Tim. Um, I've had friends come to Christ Church, mm -hmm. and they see some of these symbols, traditions, yeah. and they kind of like, oh, Catholicism. Yeah. And they leave, and there's, I guess it's partly a problem of understanding what the symbols are and what they mean, but also right. it can sometimes be a barrier to people becoming part of the church. I'm just wondering what, what Yeah. I mean, so my first response is that if I went to, into a, into a, like a Pentecostal church, I'd go, oh, Pentecostalism, and I'd, I'd go out, right? And so, you know, in some sense, it's kind of to each, each, to each their own. I, I, I think that we need to really work on this fear of this of the word of Catholic. Catholic is a substantive, reformed is the adjective. What's more important, that which modifies or that which is modified? The modified is always more important, right? It's that which modifies, which is the adjective. That which modifies is less important, right? A red apple, what's more important, red or apple? 
the apple, right? The apple's more important. Even though red is part of it, red modifies it, the substantive is always the substantive. And the adjective is just that which modifies it. <clears throat> we are Reformed Catholics. Catholic is always the more enduring term. That's the substantive thing. It's the Catholic faith. It's the Catholic faith that we profess Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, either in the Apostles or the Nicene Creed. One holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's the more, most important thing. The Reformed, which we also embrace and we love, um, is simply modifying the noun. Um, so we're Reformed and Catholic in that sense, but we're Reformed Catholics, and the Catholic is always the more enduring term. And so I think we have to really work uh, and be patient with people and help them to understand that Catholicity is something that's very, very important. It's the most important thing. And it's what Calvin was all trying to explain. We're Catholics, he was saying. It's the beginning of the Institutes. It's a novelty. It goes way, way back. This is back from the beginning. And Calvin goes at pains to quote the Fathers again and again and again to show the Catholicity of the movement. <laughs> um, so what do we do in our postmodern age with low church people who not only have no kind of, no, uh, who have this, this kind of fear of Catholicism, um, they also have zero um, uh, sensibility or zero need for the, the, the whole history of the church. The church fathers, the medieval period, the, the, even the reform period, what, they, don't, they don't give a, a rat's bottom about those things. And so that's the bigger problem, I think, for, for these people. It's not just that they, they think it's that we're, we're in league with the Pope. The bigger problem is that they have no sense of the, the, the historic nature of the church and the, the, um, the breadth of it and the depth of it and the height of it. Um, and so, so in that historic breadth, you have these developments of, yeah, of, of, of uh, kind of rich symbolism. I think that's very important and meaningful. When we move away from aesthetic beauty and worship, by the way, when it doesn't matter, when it see, part of the Catholic tradition is recognizing that being human means being aesthetically minded. Um, and um, what you see is important in worship. When you go from the Old Testament, where you see what you see is important, right? We see that in the Old Testament. The tabernacle was important. The temple with its 500 pomegranates or whatever is all over the place that they, that they had kind of carved everywhere. It's important. When you get the New Testament, there's never a moment that says, oh, by the way, now these things aren't important. It doesn't matter that you're human. It doesn't matter that you have senses and smell and sight and, and ears. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't say that anywhere. Um, but somewhere along the line, someone made the connection that that um, that kind of Old Testament way was was a substandard way of, of going about these things, and now that we're quote unquote spiritual, we don't we don't need that stuff anymore. I think that's a mistake, um, and I think to a degree, no one really believes that, right? So you go to you go to a um, a Baptist, lots of Baptist churches. They they build these beautiful buildings. First Baptist in Vancouver. It's a gorgeous building. Why? Because the aesthetic matters. The beauty matters. The 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 gesture of the building at least matters. An ugly flag? Right. The charismatic. You have the flag the flag wavers and the the 
what we tend to do, we tend to now make our, our buildings more just kind of a pragmatic. We make them like theaters and auditoriums. And no longer is, you know that verse, um, what I'd love to see in our church as we come in into the foyers, two, two kind of signs, uh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But there's something of beauty which is appropriate for worship. Um, and uh, the Catholic tradition has always understood that. Um, the more kind of pragmatic, utilitarian, low church doesn't seem to get it. Um, now it can be really you. You can go overboard with this stuff, right? You can get. I've seen some churches that are just kind of gaudy and not very nice. But you can have a classic expression of aesthetic that can give honor to God. So the vaulting ceilings, the vaulting church, with this, it draws your heart up to God. I think in a way that the, the modern auditorium just doesn't do. They're quite thoughtful, like those medieval churches, the way that they're. You, you have the the um, you know the, the 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 nave and the transept and and the the, the chancel and often that chancel is, is this way the the the, the chancel is, is slightly towards the side to the the, the, the crucified head of Christ uh, um, beautiful representation of, of of thoughtful worship I think it's it's anyway I'm going on here Tim what do we do I think we need to educate them and and tell them well, the, Catholicism is the thing, and the fact that you don't understand that is is a <laughs> is a significant problem. Um, and uh, it, I think we've got a long, a long, so you know, a long road ahead of us in Kelowna. And so we have to be able to kind of, I think, engage these people, converse with them, and um, you know, slowly help them to see that it's not it's not a threat, um, and it's the it's the place where we can actually proclaim the gospel most effectively, I think, and with most faithfulness. And John, did you just mention, like, in that, that it doesn't, like, these things don't actually, like, they're not necessary unto salvation? They're not necessary unto salvation. No, they aren't. But it doesn't mean they're, they're, un, they're either, they're, um, they're immaterial or unhelpful. Not necessary, but, but they certainly can uh, help or hinder. These, the, the, the matter's a, a diaphora. You can do it one way or you can do the other. We do it this way because we actually believe it's the most helpful way. Why do we, for instance, go to the front and drink from one cup? Because we believe that if you sit in your pew and get a little plastic cup, it smacks of atomization. It smacks of fierce individualism. It's just me and Jesus um, and, and, and me and my little cup. <laughs> I have a picture of a guy drinking his little plastic cup that I keep just to remind me of, of this kind of individualism of that, that picture. So we believe that there's this corporate togetherness of going to going to Christ and receiving from Christ that kind of gets rid, rid of that, um, what we think is, is less helpful. So it's not necessary because you can be saved in a Baptist church drinking your little cup in your pew. Right? I hope so for all of your sake. Some of them did. Yeah. 
Not necessary. No, not necessary. But the problem is, is that when when there was a the, now, the manner in which the reformers rejected Rome and Roman tradition varies. Luther, of course, is much closer. Luther didn't didn't tear down all the statues. Luther kept a lot of the traditions of the of the Catholic, the Catholic tradition. Calvin kept more of them than than um, the the radical Puritans, so the the Baptists, and and the and well the Anabaptists were more radical. Um, Calvin kept kept a form of liturgy. Calvin kept scripted prayers. Calvin kept all these things which are still alive in the Reformed tradition. You get that still. Um, but the people, my concern is that the people yeah, who, who rejected the, the Adiaphora and didn't understand its helpfulness, um, you, you, you lead down a road, you, you get down a road where what, what actually comes in its place, nature abhors a vacuum, what you get is, is just culture, godless culture coming in. You get show business. So now instead of, instead of a reverent, service where the fear of God and all this is, is part of the service, you have you have um, vaudeville, essentially. Jokes and, and, and videos and shows. And I got I, I was scant at a certain point I just started to kind of lose hope in the evangelical church because all I got was commercials and and, and little um, sound bites and YouTube clips on a Sunday. So you know if you've not seen it, there's a really good film. It's not perfect, but it's called The Way with uh, Martin Sheen. And it's about a man who does the uh, the, the Camino um, pilgrimage in, in Spain. And he, he's lost a son, and he's grieving his sons. And his son was was, was on the, the Camino. Camino. Sorry? The Al Camino, yeah. Um, and there he, he kind of collects a ragtag number of people along with him and one of them is this irish skeptic he's an author and he's been really abused by the he really hates the church and um he won't go in, martin sheen will eventually from time to time will go into a church and look at it and this guy refuses to go in at a certain point they he does at the very end he goes into this this beautiful um roman catholic church and they're they're swinging the incense they're, they're, um, and it's this huge rope, and the the, inc the incense um, pod is swinging back and forth, and it's such a dramatic moment. And I'm not a kind of a, like a smells and bells guy. I'm not going to go down that road. But but I'll tell you what, when they when they just the, the gravity and the weight, and the and this 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 um, this Irish skeptic atheist is sitting in the church, and he just starts to shake because there's a sense of holiness and of gravity and of weight. You don't get with a YouTube clip on Sunday morning. So I'm a little bit nonplussed by people who are like just so kind of impressed by the YouTube clips and are just horrified that that the Roman Catholics have some incense because it reminds them of revelation of our prayers going up to God and the smell which reminds us of the beauty of holiness. It's 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 a it's a it's a disconnect for me. I don't get it. Even though I might not do that, I think it's better than that by a long run. There are some things that we do. I think that people are not going to understand. I think. I think. Um, but you know, I think just we we educate. We talk about it. We we invite them into something that's much bigger than than what the contemporary evangelical church is. The traditions, the ceremonies that have this historical link, they 
They invite us into something so much bigger than we are. That's what I love about it, about the about our tradition. I've grown to love it. And, you know, it's been a journey for me as well, but I've grown to really admire it. It's big, deep. It's 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 profound. It's much more ancient. The ancient faith that we're part of. Yeah. Any other any other questions or thoughts? About ceremony or rite or what we do? I was just going to say it's, it's helpful for me to meet like these articles. Yeah. Times are helpful for me to understand. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about what I love about the Anglican Church is it keeps its it keeps its hand firm on the rudder of Scripture. And says we cannot do anything that's repugnant to the word of God. Like that's our guide, ultimate guide. And at the same time, it understands that there's a human, a, a humanity about the way we go about worship. That's important as well. Yeah. There was a voice over here. I think experientialism is just so we often apply to that. Um, so what is the line within that? Like it drawing people to God and like loud music. I think I think what does yeah because we all, we all want to be we all want to be experiential right? It has to be experiential or else it's not worth doing. I, Right. So my my concern in all of this and how we think about experientialism and what kind of experience, experience we're trying to engender, because we do want them to encounter God. That's that's First Corinthians 14. It's about people encountering the presence of God in our, in our service. What kind of what kind of um, experience are we trying to are we trying to generate? Is it the fear and the reverence and the awe of God? Because that consistently across the New Testament, is, it's the experience that's being generated. Awe, reverence. That kind of he's he's, he's the the dread God who loves us profoundly. Um, so if it's this kind of like mosh pit, then I just don't see the the, the fear of God or the reverence of God there. If it's sens if it's sensual in a kind of a in the kind of a sexual way, mm -hmm. um, if it's if it's all about kind of, if it's uh, what's the word. Um, If it's about um, like kind of um, explosions, that that kind of um, a spectacle. If it's about spectacle, like like uh, like a Michael Bay film, right? Then I think that's that's the wrong way to, to go about it. Um, pardon me. Yeah, if it's if it's if it's uh, pandering to our materialism, like like gold dust and, and gold fillings and all of that that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, how how is it shaping? How is it? What kind of experience is it promoting? Um, and I would look at a lot, a lot of those things and say it doesn't seem to me that the reverence, fear, awe, and 
you know, this idea of splendor and majesty. That seems to be the scriptural. That's what we want to do as a church is that we're always trying to aim at majesty, splendor, awe, and then the, 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 um, the knowledge of the love of God in Christ through the gospel that we're precious to him. You know, um, and, and also repentance, right? That's the other experience. That would, repentance towards God, faith in Jesus Christ. So is it the kind of experience that's making us really um, shake and quake? So I was, just let me say this. I was reading through the, this morning through the, uh, the, the parable of the Lord's, um, the prodigal son. Um, both of those, par that, that parable is, is prefaced by, by the parable of the lost coin and the, the 99. And all of them are predicated upon repentance. That heaven delights, what does heaven delight in? Heaven delights when one sinner what? repents. The prodigal son has a complete moment of, uh, of waking up. What have I done? Comes to his right mind. I'm in a pigsty. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to tell him I'm no longer to worthy uh, to be your son. I've offended you. I've offended heaven. He, 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 he creates this conversation in his head. He's deeply repentant. That's the, that's the thing that God delights in. That's what heaven delights in. That's what God embraces. And so without that kind of repentance and grief before God, um, our experience, I think, is actually quite light and trite. And, um, not, not, uh, so that kind of mosh pit stuff, I just don't see the repentance in it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's this kind of entitlement and, and uh yeah. Right. Right. And I think that's I think that's where it's possible. Yeah. Right. That it, it's just about it's about me and my experience, and, and it, it does bring you into a place where you have time to like rule some people. People can't think of my noises or screws, but um, right. some people can like they can come to a place where you're praying with that mm -hmm. The dark, the, the dark lights. I mean, the whole thing. It's a wrong. It's a wrong kind of um, association. The rock concert. Yes, the, the, it does do that. Yeah. So yeah, so it seems to me that we're we're safer to follow the tradition of the church over two thousand years, and what they've 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 you know the this idea of the the great tradition um, or the the consensus of the church that there's a way to do it that's safe. I mean, doing it for two thousand years just to reject that and and to say, oh no, it's actually better to do it like a rock concert. This is very very proud 
and and uh, presumptuous in my mind. Um, we should we should actually put some stock in tradition. They know what they they know what they're doing. Um, how to generate reverence, how to generate awe, how to how to regard the Lord, um, and uh, and plus, you know, we're not kind of inviting people in to have a good time. We're not. Why do you guys read so much scripture? That's boring. Why do you guys pray so much? That's boring. You know, entertain me. Um, but we're never going to get them if we just try to entertain them on Sundays. They're going to find more fun things to do. It's more fun to play golf on Sunday than to go to church. We can't get them like that. We're not there to make them feel good. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's uh, There's been a sudden kind of shift in church in the last you know, 100 years, where all of a sudden church has to be the place that you make people feel good. I echo Tim's statement of, like, this has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you actually look into the way that the Anglican liturgy is shaped, uh, the the logic of it, and the way that we approach God, it's very, very scripturally thoughtful, um, and it's uh, in a way that the modern the modern evangelical simply isn't. Um, so that's that's good. Well, guys, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you that we can learn. We thank you, Lord, that we can be your church, and um, Lord, that uh, we can be a church that is all about you and all about your gospel, and that wants to be founded upon your word. Uh, We don't want to do anything that is repugnant to it, but we do want to cultivate reverence and awe and fear and joy in the Lord as we worship you. So help us to do that, Lord, in spirit and in truth, we ask. And um, make us to adore your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray, for his sake. Amen.